All right, Mr. News. Hit it! The wonderful Trump economy that's been groomed for four glorious years now being threatened under assault by Bidenomics. Stand by. The doors of the newsroom are locked and the PC police are not getting in, so sit back and relax as we unfold this edition of the Ledger Report. There was a time, a time before cable, when the local anchorman reigned supreme. And in San Diego, one anchorman was more man than the rest. His name was Graham Ledger. On the region. Yes, ma'am. Madam Speaker, Madam Speaker. On the funding, Republicans say that just a fraction of the education funding in the COVID bill is just allocated for this year and much of it over the next 10 years. So how do you square that with the need to open schools with the funding if some of so much of it is well, down uh, the road? I uh, don't place too much weight on uh, what the Republicans say, even though it seems to be a value to you to use as a question. But the fact is, is that this is the money that is needed. This is the money that is needed. The $130 billion in K-12 will help provide immediate relief uh, to schools so they can safely reopen for in-person instruction and address the difficult uh, multi-year challenge is making up lost time in the classroom. This learning loss is is heartbreaking for stop children. Tape, stop tape. The learning loss because blue state governors forced children to stay home and did not allow them to go to school like normal children have done for centuries. This learning loss is because of the politicians. It is not because of the virus. And I have to explain this to people from time to time. Oh, the pandemic shut down the restaurant. No, the pandemic didn't shut down the restaurant. The governor of the state or that county, what have you, shut down the restaurant. The pandemic didn't do anything. In fact, as far as pandemics go, if you look at the worldwide numbers... This is one of the weakest pandemics in the history of pandemics. You know, you're talking in comparison to the Black Plague or even the the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, the Wuhan coronavirus numbers, as inflated as they are, and we know they're inflated, are nothing. They're a blip on the radar of humanity. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, they're going to be scratching their heads. And they're going to be thinking... What what happened in 2020? How did this transpire? This was the flu. And by the way, the flu numbers are down. Way down. Almost non-recognizable in a normal society in the United States. I mean, they're counting them in the hundreds instead of the tens of thousands. So what happened to the flu exactly? Hmm? Has the Wuhan coronavirus cured the flu? But... Nancy Pelosi and company are hell-bent on spending money that we do not have in order to correct a problem not caused by the pandemic, not caused by a virus from China. We don't know exactly how it was originated in Wuhan. Somehow it germinated, originated in Wuhan, China. We know it's from China. It's not because of that. 
It's because of the government response. Gavin Newsom in California and Andrew Cuomo, who, by the way, if you recall, yours truly, since late summer of 2020, had been calling for a federal investigation into Andrew Cuomo and his mishandling of the government response in New York to the Wuhan coronavirus, in particular, the deaths, the abnormal number, and the compared to the other states, the spiking numbers of deaths in these nursing homes. And now, yours truly, once again, is validated. Uh, to me, back then, it was a no-brainer. We could see what was going on. That in New York, the number of Wuhan coronavirus deaths in these nursing homes were disproportionate to the rest of the states, made no sense. Why did New York become the epicenter of death for the Wuhan coronavirus? Okay, yeah, you could say that because it's the largest city in the United States and it's packed tightly, but we're talking overall in the state of New York, not just in, in the city of New York. And even the communist mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, is turning on Andrew Cuomo, saying, hey, this guy blew it. So, you know... When the Marxists are no longer circling their wagons around each other, there's real trouble. But in the end, it was Newsom, it was Cuomo, it was Pritzker in Illinois, and all these other Whitmer and Wolf and Murphy. Their response shut down the restaurants. Their response pulled the children out of school. And I was screaming at the time, wrong, 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 back in April of 2020, I said, no, 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 because I was doing my research on herd immunity. And I was also doing my research on how these kinds of viruses affect young people. Almost negligible. And we know that, again, yours truly was validated again. Only, not because I'm a genius. It's because I was smart enough, I think, or astute enough, or disciplined enough, to study the numbers and, and look at history. And that's what conservatives do. This is the difference between a conservative and a liberal. A liberal is a knee-jerk reaction to a virus in order to achieve a nefarious goal when you're a Gavin Newsom or an Andrew Cuomo. A conservative looks at what's happening and looks back to history as a way to figure out where we're going in the future. Not necessarily 100% correct, but if you're a student of history at all, you know the old axiom is true. Those of us who don't study history, are doomed to repeat it. And so when you looked at the Wuhan coronavirus numbers early, and the coronaviruses have been out there for decades that we knew of, you looked at them, you, you saw the pattern developing very quickly, that the children were largely immune. Yet we had this knee-jerk reaction from Pelosi and Schumer and company, oh, and Newsom and Pritzker and Cuomo, oh, we got we to protect the children. We were, what we did was we delayed the inevitable rollout, if you will, of the virus across the United States. That's all we did. Locking people up and locking children up is exactly the opposite of what should have been done. The children should be in school, not only to learn, but because we need to establish herd immunity. And I'm sorry, but I'm still a believer in herd immunity. And that's what a vaccine is, ladies and gentlemen. It's nothing more than establishing herd immunity through mankind's way of dealing with with a virus, which is a really touchy thing. Mankind does not have control over the flu yet, do we? Every year there's a new variant of the flu. That's why I don't get a flu shot. 
Because every year there's a new strain of the flu. So what's the point? Same thing with the Wuhan coronavirus. And let me remind you that we're going to have to live with the Wuhan coronavirus for the rest of our lives. It's going to mutate. It's going to come back every season. And so I would ask Cuomo and Newsom and Pritzker and Murphy and Wolf and the nutcase in Michigan, Whitmer, what are you going to do? Shut down your economy every flu season? Every coronavirus season? This is crazy. We all know the reason. The political response, the government, blue state-led response to the Wuhan coronavirus was done for one reason and one reason only. Political gain. And in particular, and there's a secondary reason, control over the people. The mask mandate being a compliance test. That's all it is. But the primary reason was to torpedo the Trump economy. The Trump economy that was booming in 2019 and then into early 2020. Stock markets were at record highs. Yeah, they're at record highs now because the foundation was pretty damn solid. But remember, the stock markets tanked in April of 2020. And I was on record then. And uh, again, yours truly has been... um, blessed with being proven right again to buy at that time. The markets were tanking. It was it was irrational, and that's what the markets do, right? They're driven by fear and greed, and in that case, they were driven by fear. And then we've turned around, and we're in record territory right now. Some people might say it's record territory that's rather irrational, and we'll speak to that in, in just a moment. I want to get dive into the economy, because that's what this is all about. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer want to spend $1.9 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars that we don't have. It does not exist, ladies and gentlemen. And this is on top of the other trillions of dollars that were spent in the last 12 months or so on so-called coronavirus relief. Well, Nancy's talking about $130 billion for schools. $130 billion out of... $1.9 trillion. You see how she evaded the question. You had the reporter asking the question, Madam Speaker, the Republicans say this, this, is, this is not going to really do immediate relief. Well, it's not. Unless, of course, you have an upside-down pension in California, then you're going to get a windfall. CalPERS and all the other government pension plans in blue states that are near bankruptcy or in bankruptcy That's what this is. This is a bailout for the blue state governors who have mismanaged their states. That's all this is. That's where the $1.9 trillion is going. $130 billion is a rounding, isn't even a rounding error for $1.9 trillion. $130 billion is a drop in the bucket. And of course, Nancy has to uh, evade that. In fact, there's been some independent analysis of, of where this is going from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. That's an oxymoron, if I ever heard one, but this is a nonprofit group. According to its analysis, about 1% of the $1.9 trillion is going toward vaccines, and only another 5% is targeted toward mitigating the public health problems caused by the pandemic. <laughs> Not by the pandemic. The problems are caused by the blue state and blue city and blue county uh, politicians. The um, One of the facets of this $1.9 trillion is to limit the unemployment extensions to the end of August 
And then that money, the rest of the money, see, they're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to give you extended unemployment benefits, but then it stops at the end of August. And so what happens with the rest of that money? This is what the Republicans are trying to point out. Well, it's going to the pensions. It's going to bail out people like Gavin Newsom who have mismanaged uh, their pensions. But, you know, the Democrats are not done. Joe Biden's talking about another $3 trillion. $1.9 trillion? $3 trillion? You're talking $5 trillion? Where's that money coming from? Where is that money coming from? The debt clock. The debt clock. 28 going on $29 trillion. Does anybody care? Does anybody care that we're looking at burdening my child and your children and our grandchildren with debt that they're not going to be able to pay off. And so how is that going to work out? They're going to be slaves to government for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives. And then student loans. There's another $1.7 trillion. Joe Biden is being pressured right now to sign an executive order to write off $50,000 per student loan. So in other words, if you have $49,000 in student loans, poof! Your debt's gone. Where did that debt go? Where is that debt going to go? Is that debt just going to be absorbed by the atmosphere? No, I'm going to pay it. You're going to pay it. Our children are going to pay for it. Our grandchildren are going to pay because it's going to be folded in to the operating debt. And so that debt clock spinning at $28 trillion right now, I guarantee you, if all of this passes, if all of this happens that we're talking about, you're talking probably in the neighborhood of $33 trillion by the halfway point of 2021. This is insanity. This is absolute fiscal and monetary insanity. And you have the Fed quiet. Jerome is quiet. And then you got the former Fed, Janet Yellen. Basically, the Fed and the Treasury Department are now married. And they're going to work hand in glove at what exactly? Manipulating the dollar and manipulating interest rates and manipulating the debt and monetizing the debt. These people are theorists. They are radical, liberal theorists. They're going by their book. And their book is a recipe for an economic calamity in this country. Because in the end, The laws of economics always trump the laws of liberal policy. Always. The laws of economics always win. It's like gravity. Gravity always wins. We fight gravity every day, right? Jet airliner takes off. We're fighting gravity. But in the end, that jet airliner's got to come down. One way or another, it's going to come down. A rocket ship to Mars... Maybe it's a one-way trip. Don't have to worry about gravity. But when we send somebody to the moon, yeah, gravity's going to win on that one too. The laws of economics are like the laws of gravity. And the gravity of the situation that we're dealing with in terms of the monetization of our debt and the absorbing of things like student loan and no one even dealing with the IOUs in Social Security and Medicare and the $200 trillion dollar unfunded liability that we're all on the hook for no one even cares they just care about spending more money for the coronavirus response it is absolute economic insanity 
and it is borderline criminal. Imagine people trying to get away with this in the private sector. They'd be hauled off to jail. And so we want to talk about this with my buddy and financial expert, Thomas Landstreet, who knows a thing or two about economics because Thomas Landstreet, other than being a hedge fund manager and a really smart guy and a pretty decent looking guy, um, studied under a gentleman by the name of Art Laffer. Do you remember Art Laffer? I do. Art Laffer's been on my program many, many times. He is author of The Laffer Curve. And he's the person that brought some economic sanity to the United States by being a part of the Reagan administration. And effectively, he said, hey, lower taxes, you're going to produce more revenue to the Treasury. Of course, we're looking at exactly the opposite. But we saw it during the Trump administration for a a glimpse. And by the way, he advised President Trump as well. Art Laffer did. And so for a slight glimpse there, for a few years, we, we had lower taxes and voila, you had more revenue coming into the, cha- to the Treasury. So Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer could spend even more of our, our tax dollars. But right now, we're looking at deficit spending like we have never seen before in this republic. And we are headed toward an economic brick wall at one point or another, either in the near future or the not-too-distant future. Joining me now is financial expert, hedge fund manager, writer, speaker, and a pretty decent skier for his age, uh, Thomas Landstreet. Tom, um, I see nothing good on the horizon. I'm sorry to be a pessimist. (laughs) I know the stock markets are at record high, and I'm involved in that. And when there was that dip uh, back in April of 2020 and the panic over Corona, I was saying, buy, buy, buy. And obviously, that was a good time to buy. But this euphoria uh, that's happening in the markets right now overall seems to be a party that maybe is built on some sort of foundation uh, that is less than solid, less than concrete. Would you agree with that overall? I'm afraid so. Um, I, I too have one foot on the accelerator and then one foot on the brake. Um, we've seen this before this scenario, this is a very frothy and speculative market. Uh, when you see stocks, uh, go up 10, 12, 14% on a decent number, you know, you're in trouble. The old days, I mean, unfortunately I have muscle memory from decades and decades in the industry, when you put up a great number as a good earnings number as a company, the stock would go up two, two and a half percent. That was a huge day. Not anymore. It's 14 percent on average. And so this is a wildly speculative uh, market. And you always see this type of speculation before a calamity. And, and it literally every time in history, including 2008, 1999, um, even uh, in January and February of uh, two, 2020 before the before the pandemic. So yes, it's it's uh, it's it, the behavioral characteristics of this market exhibit a tremendous amount of risk. So when you say you have one foot on the gas pedal and one foot on the brake, uh, I love that analogy. But to break it down, that is, hey, if you're invested, you better keep an eye on what your investments are, and you better keep an eye on the environment, and you better be involved in your investments. Would that be uh, pretty much what you're saying? Well, I think so. I mean, we could wake up one day and we're down 10%. And uh, if you have all these growth stocks, you could be down 20. And you just don't want that. And so, you know, there are a bunch of really amazing macro economists that I follow. 
a number of which, I mean, there's a guy named Lacey Hunt. You can go Google his work. It's tremendous, very thoughtful, PhD. And, and if you were to buy this market today, Graham, at these levels, your projected yield on that investment 10 years out is flat to negative. Hmm. And the reason is because of the valuations you're buying it at. Remember, GDP hasn't really grown much in a decade. So, and yet the market's up 350%. You're paying so much more for so much less. And so your, your expected yield on that investment today is a lot lower than historic averages. So yes, be very careful here. Uh, I like value stocks. I'm kind of that inclined that way because I just don't want to wake up one day, like I said, with the market down 10 and me down 20. Um, I'm going to do everything in my power to avoid that. There are times to have your foot on the accelerator completely. And I think you have to have some stocks, obviously, that keep going up and you'll miss out if you don't. But be prepared. Take some, maybe take 20 or 30% off the table right here. So if we do have this hiccup, you, you got buying power. That's- I, 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 I think that's great advice. And, and another thing to, to keep your eye on is precious metals. And maybe we'll speak to that uh, in just a moment, because I know that that's in your wheelhouse. But inflation, you know, we haven't seen, quote, inflation per se, you know, and the Fed does this victory dance, Jerome Powell and, and before him, Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is now in charge of the Treasury. What's the difference between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve? I don't know anymore. I don't want to get down in the weeds in that too much. But the bottom line is, oh, you know, inflation is being held uh, right in check in that 2% range that the Federal Reserve wants. But meantime, gasoline prices are starting to go up. I'm seeing people all over the country saying, what is going on with gasoline prices? It This... The, I'm reading today that that now there are real signs of inflation, but we've been talking about signs of inflation for years now. Is inflation almost a a non-entity in this? I mean, I know we have inflation, but the way we read inflation seems to be kind of cockamamie and, and artificial. Well, the CPI is a bogus statistic is what you're suggesting. And right. so they come out with CPI and the market reacts to it. To me, it's um, it's just not real. And there are a couple of reasons is one, they're not measuring the true basket of goods, like 10 different items and what those same items cost this year versus last year versus the year before. They're adjusting. So let's pretend that steak is up 50%. Let's just pretend. <clears throat> they're going to assume you and I, the consumer, actually don't buy steak and we adjust to, we, we start buying, we substitute out a steak into chicken. And so they make a downward adjustment in steak based on their expectation for us to start buying chicken. Mm-hmm. So it's not a true measure. I mean, that's just not. The other one is 29% of the CPI, Graham, is a survey. It's called owner's equivalent rent. I think we've talked about this. They call homeowners and they ask them, what could you rent? This is homeowners, not mm-hmm. landlords. So of course we are calling an unprofessional audience here and they asked the homeowners what could you what do you could you rent your house for this month versus last month versus last year well even i who spent my life studying the markets would have an incorrect or let's say unscientific answer if they happen to call my sweet wife who's smart as a whip she would have even less so of an unprofessional answer she might look at my mortgage and if she's bullish add 100 bucks to it if she's bearish subtract 100 in other words it's a joke and yet it's 29 percent of the cpi so it's like China's economic statistics. The market reacts to them, but they're not real. So eventually, though, Graham, reality matters. And right. it matters when it's too late. Yeah, at reality. And, and speaking of artificial, 
interest rates. You know, interest rates. I'm one of those people that in my first home I bought um, uh, was looking at double digit interest rates. That's how long ago it was. And I, you know, I did an adjustable rate to get it down in the single digits, but it was a high single digits. That was back in a time when we had um, the Reagan administration. We had a guy named Art Laffer, who, you know, uh, pretty well. Uh, governing a lot of what was going on in this country. And interest rates, I think back then, were allowed to float, if you will. Now they've been artificially low for, what, more than a decade. I went into the bank the other day to try and look at a CD. It wasn't even worth putting your money in a CD. You know, you got the same 0.5% interest rate at just putting it in in a regular savings account as a CD. Artificially low interest rates were, I think, possibly you could make the excuse for it. When there is an economic calamity uh, underway in 2009 or, or during the you know, short period of this uh, pandemic, but to keep them down this long, uh, what kind of damage do you think that that is doing overall to our economic picture? Well, initially, it, it isn't damage. The market is a reflection of those interest rates and that easy money. It inflated the capital markets. When right. The Fed buys treasuries, which is how they are are monetizing our debt, essentially. They're injecting trillions of dollars of new money into what? The capital markets, because they're buying them from banks, the money center banks. And so it goes right into, let's call it the artery. And the artery is the capital markets. And they expect that then to go through the veins and the capillaries out to the average household and so forth to, to basically get out into the economy. But it's first reflected in, this, in, the, in the capital markets, which is stock prices and, tra- and bond prices. So in other words, you know, securities. And boy, have we, have we seen that. So what does it do? It also incentivizes debt creation. Yep. And we've seen an unprecedented amount of that. And the reason I have my foot tapping the brake is because I'm fairly freaked out by the just sheer level of debt in the system. When I say the system, and we've talked about this in the past, was that coming into the COVID crisis, 60% of the companies that make up the NASDAQ index had junk bond rated debt. And it's much higher now, Graham. In fact, the amount of debt issued just this year is at a record already this year. And so systemic debt, meaning corporate debt plus government debt, we all know that with the trend, if the if this, uh, stimulus package passes, we'll end the year with $6 trillion annual budget deficit, which has to be financed through what? Treasury issuance. Right. So the Fed's going to have to buy those treasuries. They can't let rates increase. If they do, this market collapses. If the market collapses, the economy collapses because the market is why the economy is strong. One of the reasons why interest rates can't go up now at this point is then this is the problem. We're painted into a, a financial, economic and fiscal monetary uh, corner. They can't go up because we won't be able to service the debt, would we? If, if interest rates were al- allowed to float to where they should be, I don't know where they should be. Let's say 4%, 5%. Uh, that debt service on the, on the public side of the debt, not even talking about the private you're, you're, when you say collapse, I know you're probably thinking more private debt, that they're not going to be able to make their loan payment, right, and the, on the private sector, but also on the public sector. We're talking about squeezed on both ends, are we not? Correct. So the government itself, let's pretend that the 10-year Treasury bond goes to the interest rate that it had achieved right before COVID. With the new debt that the federal government has taken on, if those rates went back again to pre-COVID levels, the amount of interest, annual interest that would be added to their obligations is almost a trillion dollars. So they can't, they can scarcely afford that on top of all the debt they already have to service. So again, they're, they're in the corner, just like you said, 
Uh, if, if corporate debt rises, there are a lot of zombie companies out there, a record number of zombie companies, which, by the way, is defined as companies that do not generate the cash flows to actually service their debt. In other words, to pay the interest much less the principal. Then you've got the government debt and the fact that you'd see government debt, the debt costs go up almost a trillion. They're stuck. And they're going to continue to try to mollify the markets by saying, yeah, well, we'll, we'll rate, you know, we'll taper, which means tighten, uh, and we'll get there and we're not worried about inflation. We're going to let inflation run hot. And they're saying all that. And, and for now, it's just, it's happy talk. But I think that this bubble is so inflated tight. It's like a balloon, Graham, that's overinflated. It can brush against the carpet and pop loudly. We're there. And, and it, that's what worries me. I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm old fashioned. You know, I'm not at the casino like most people today. I'm, I'm, um, I'm outside with the car running trying to escape. Well, an, another potential bubble, and I don't know if you think this is, I'm just trying to square what's going on in housing. So we go from interest rates to housing because obviously they're closely um, linked. Um, the government and in its infinite wisdom has granted 180 day uh, forbearance. You don't have to pay your uh, mortgage for 180 days. All right. Well, we're right around the 180 day mark. Um, so um, I know that some readings of foreclosures are up. But again, you have this forbearance, maybe a delay of uh, execution, not a stay, but a delay of execution. And maybe we're going to start seeing um, some foreclosures uh, increase here. Yet, on the other hand, the market, the housing market in some areas is on fire, in, in particular in some areas in California, of all places, that's been hammered by the government response to the Wuhan uh, coronavirus. And inventory is extremely low in some markets. So, and then, But I also know that many people, because they're paranoid about the Wuhan coronavirus, don't want to put their house on the market because they don't want people inside their house. So how do you square... Uh, where we are with this housing market and where it goes in 2021. Well, first off, there's a paradigm shift in the way people want to live. And, and we all thought that we would be, that we, that people would be migrating to cities and you know yeah. how many developments there were that were mixed use where you could shop and eat and work and live in a, you know, single community in an urban environment. And that was the rage <clears throat> and that was the future. And now that's totally been reversed. People want out. They want out of the city for obvious reasons. And they want to move to places like Colorado, where I am today, thankfully. And then my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, which is booming, of course. Yeah. But I will tell you that on the, on, there are some risks, clearly. But you know what? There's an undersupply of housing because after 08, with the huge increase of housing stock from 2006 to 2008, when that bubble burst, the housing developments uh, collapsed, right? So we just didn't have enough houses to keep up with the supply of new households. So there's still a supply demand issue where demand outstrips supply, generally speaking. So in that way, it's still a little bit healthy. The other thing is household balance sheets, Graham, are surprisingly strong. Are they? Way stronger than corporate and government balance sheets. Hmm. Uh, Cash on household balance sheets, equity, uh, because of the rising housing price, of course, you know, uh, the balance sheets are better, but cash. Um, and so I find that actually of all the bubbles, that's the one I, I can live with the most, if that makes any sense. Well, uh, but there's uh, when you talk about uh, your foot on uh, the gas and the brake, uh, before I let you go, I got to ask you about precious metals. Is that uh, on the brake pedal or the gas pedal? I'm going to guess you're on the gas pedal for that, right? I do own, I have, I have exposure to precious metals equities, which are miners. 
Um, I'm expecting a couple of things. I would expect that we might get a last surge in this market that's going to be gut wrenching. I mean, gut wrenching, shocking. Mm-hmm. And you see a grand explosion. And I, I honestly, I kind of expect it this year, but I could be very wrong. Um, there are some people that I really respect who also are looking for that outcome, maybe in June or July, a real meltdown in the market after a parabolic up move, which is often a prerequisite to a blow up. Um, precious. And then, and then of course I've had that I expect the federal reserve to jump in bigger than ever. They've already jumped in bigger than ever. Their COVID crisis response was tremendous. They bought government debt, but they also bought corporate debt, trillions of it. They bought ETFs of debt. They've never done that, of course, because it's illegal. They went around that. I won't describe how, but what they've done is unprecedented and they'll do it again. If the market rolls over aggressively, they will pile in bigger. What does that mean? Well, it means weaker dollar. And, it, we, and I believe it, it we, we could be facing 70s-style inflation. And with a weaker dollar, the best hedge is, of course, I believe, precious metals over 5,000-year history. And the miners themselves with gold at $1,800, I mean, they're putting up, this is earnings season. They're blowing numbers out. They're putting raising dividends. And they trade at five, six, seven times earnings with no debt. I mean, this is the most undervalued group in the market and nobody seems to care right now. So the deal is I do own this group one, because it's an inflation hedge mm-hmm. Two, because it's the cheapest thing out there relative to cash flow, earnings growth, revenue growth, and asset growth. And, and so, yes. And by the way, Bitcoin. Yes. I, no, I want you to talk about Bitcoin just 30 seconds. If you had to give advice to my daughter, who's, you know, in that millennial uh, range, you know, talking about Bitcoin, I've tried to get her to be very, very cautious of that. You, I like it in a lot of ways and I own it. Okay. But it is. And right now it's taking the sizzle away from precious metals. The same type of people that would worry about these things I'm articulating here are, are in Bitcoin and it's cooler than cool. However, it is a narrow market, meaning that it's not a very deep market. And the gold market is huge and deep and international. One central banks don't buy Bitcoin. They do buy gold Two. Gold is a legitimate reserve asset. You can lend against it and borrow against it, according to Basel III rules, which are the new international monetary rules. And so because of that, it's a much better play. But I do like Bitcoin, I must admit. But you put it in your high-risk bucket, right? Would you not? Yes. I've got my foot on the brake on Bitcoin. And and unfortunately, on the gas and precious metals, because I'm not being rewarded yet. But I promise I will be. (laughs) <laughs> words of wisdom from thomas landstreet thomas thank you very much if people want more information uh, about what you do uh where should they go well we have a website www.trustco t-r-u-s-c-o-m-g-m-t.com and i'm on twitter at t landstreet and i'm uh, often pontificating or you know getting out of my over my skis uh being snippy about other people's comments on twitter so you can find me there All right. Very good. Great advice. Great talking to you. And uh, we'll see you down the road. We'll see what happens. We'll check in with you maybe in uh, about a couple of months and see how things are going in the economy. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thomas. Back to student loans for just one moment. It's $1.7 trillion in total. The average student loan debt is $32,000 per person. That's a lot, by the way. In the old days, that'd be a, a mortgage, a home mortgage. Now it's uh, not even a down payment in California. But still, it's a significant amount of debt, $32,000 on average. Generally speaking, 
most of the student loan debt is between $25,000 and $50,000. So if Joe Biden capitulates to the pressure that he's under right now, and he's going to do something, he's going to do X in the tens of thousands of dollars, maybe $20,000, somewhere between twenty dollars and fifty. dollars but if he capitulates to the $50,000, that effectively wipes out the $1.7 trillion. I mean, think about it. You have $32,000 in student loan debt. All of a sudden, you have this windfall, 50000 Oh, well, okay. This was, it, it, ooh, so we save $18,000 on that loan. Woohoo! Yay! Woo! Aren't we lucky? But what does it send to the average young American? What kind of message does it send to them? Hmm? Oh, the government's going to come over and pay. I'll just rack up $50,000 in student loan debt, and Joe Biden's going to erase it. It's a terrible, terrible precedence. That if we allow to have happen, it's going to spread. Because everything in government gets larger, it doesn't get smaller. And it's going to spread to home mortgages. Mark my words. And then it'll spread to business loans. And so on. To the point where we become a complete and total fascistic government entity. Where government now owns everything. Government owns too much in this country. But if we continue down this slippery slope, government is going to own the vast majority of debt and business. It already does. It's the biggest debtor and, and creditor in the world, the United States government is. But we're going to go full tilt fascistic if we allow this kind of stuff to happen. And all we can do is speak up like I'm doing here. And you speak up to your representatives and speak up to old Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and say, hell no, Joe Biden, don't absorb per student loan debtor in this country, that is beyond socialism. That is going down the slope of fascism and a fascistic government. And all we can do is say, no, hell no. Please go to GrahamLedger.com. If you haven't signed up for this podcast just yet, go to GrahamLedger.com and you can sign up free for the Ledger Report podcast. You can also go on the website right now. Please answer the Ledger register that's on there in the upper right of the website. Is constitutional impeachment permanently damaged by partisan Democrats' political weaponization of it? They've now weaponized it twice. They've impeached Donald Trump twice. And now they're going to the kill by this phony legislation that says uh, a twice-impeached president uh, can't breathe anymore in the United States. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely insane. But you saw this coming. You saw this coming. And we can also see that the Trump economy, unfortunately, is headed for train wreck material because the Trump economy is now under assault. It's under assault from these lunatics in Washington, D.C. It's under assault from the Biden administration. It's under assault from Chuck Schumer. And it's under assault from our favorite, Nancy Pelosi. This edition of the Ledger Report is on its way. The Archives Library of Congress, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I'm Graham Ledger. And remember, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart.